Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, I want to help you dig through the weeds and get to the roots of what may be holding you back from growing and succeeding in your industry. The mindset when you have to overcome when things don't go your way. So join me in the woods. Hello, welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, join me in the woods. So today I have a very special guest. It was almost it's actually my right-hand man, Robert Morrell. Uh he, he we go back, he's a developer. We kind of worked together for a couple years. He was on the cloud, the backend server architecture, and I was more on the front end. So we we built a very close bond over the years. So he kind of left working with me. I was that was a very sad moment in my life. But he went on to do bigger and better things. He <laughs> now he's the co-founder and partner of a couple different companies. One of them, Ad Persistence, which we'll definitely get into detail a little bit later. And he's also a specialist or a guru in artificial intelligence a company called ThreadSync that you'll definitely he'll speak about what he can. We'll talk about that a little bit also. Now, one of the first things I've definitely wanted to ask you, and I actually just learned this recently, I knew you had your master's degree in computer science specialization in artificial intelligence and some other things. And I didn't know you actually have your bachelor's in computer science. So you're a hundred percent in that field. So yeah. when you first started to embark in the career path that you've gone in technology, you specifically were thinking before you went to college, this is what I want to do. Or was this something that you kind of fell into when you, when you went to college? Yeah, so my career has been all over the place. So just a little bit of a background. I always thought when I first started my career, I was actually working more in childcare. I, wow. I worked for the YMCA's and the recreation uh, departments, you know, my local communities. And I did that for like seven years. I mean, my first job when I was 15 was, you know, working as, as a camp counselor, right? So that's kind of how that starts. And uh, both my parents are teachers and going to, to, to college, my, I actually started as a math education major. Actually, before that, I had a big infatuation with technology and how technology works, especially hardware and everything like that. And, you know, my dad was pretty upset at me when I broke our, our family computer because I took the whole thing apart and, you know, little, had a little running with static electricity for the first time and uh, find the middle of the word. <laughs> thank, thank goodness we had, uh, you know, an insurance plan on the, uh, the desktop. It was like old Dell, Inspira, whatever those things looked like at the time. I can't remember the, the exact model. But I uh, love technology, love taking that stuff apart, and uh, I love playing games. And actually, so I thought I was actually going to go into the field of digital animation. Oh. And uh, a good friend of mine and myself, we're going to go out to this college called UAT, University of Advancing Technology in Arizona, because uh, a lot of companies in that space uh, and in, in tech space were hiring from there because there weren't a lot of tech programs around. Right? You go to school for computer science, engineering, you had through the high schools, various high schools, you have like programs where like students would go for the afternoon and they would you know work on a trade skill and the computer classes started to build from there. But there weren't too many options and uh, we wanted to get into different types of tech fields. So we thought about doing that and then we, we got out there toward the place, trying to figure out how we're gonna be able to afford to move out there and like pay for stuff. And then the whole thing collapsed. I ended up staying here. 
So I was like, okay, I started going to school for math education because when both my parents were teachers kind of thought that's the way I was going to move. And I, I loved math and I was good at math or so I thought I'll get into that in a second. <laughs> um, so I started going to college for math and I uh, did, did really well. And then I just wanted to be in technology. And so I actually changed my major after the first couple of years. I dropped the education program and then moved into computer science. And at the time, William Patterson didn't even have an accredited program. They were slowly building a computer science department. But, you know, I didn't really care. I wanted to do something I knew I, I loved. And at the time, my dad wasn't really thrilled about me changing majors because, you know, back in the you know, 2000s, that wasn't a huge thing. Internet right. was just, just becoming, yeah, technology was its own industry. But so a lot of people didn't see the future in it or enough of it to, to want to kind of put all your eggs in that basket. Fast forward to today, like a whole different story, right? <laughs> I started, I was going for computer science. I ended up finishing my bachelor's degree there and then moving on to, to grad school because uh, getting a job in 2008 when the market crashed uh, was difficult. So I actually didn't even plan on going to uh, grad school. In fact, once I completed my bachelor's, I couldn't get a job. So I started my first company called Aries Digital Technologies. I did that with a good friend of mine as my partner. And the idea was we wanted to basically build we had a repair side of the company for technology, uh, products, computers, laptops, all that stuff, networks. And then also what I wanted to do is get more into the manufacturing side, the hardware side, because that's, that's what I loved at that time. And uh, start to build like custom machines and servers for different organizations. And um, that, that takes a lot of uh, money to get started because it's not a business that needs zero capital or anything. So... That basically never came to fruition, but I did the whole repair thing for quite some time. And what that taught me is I learned a lot about interacting with other people, the customer service side of things, you know, a little bit more about technology too, um, because I had to obviously study and keep up with some of the latest trends and managing you know, computer equipment and networks. And so that was really my first kind of you know, run in with the industry as far as trying to break into it. And then later I, I started working in, in the IT field, um, you know, with Cablevision. And I was there for a number of years. That was also, it was hardware, but also software applications on top of the hardware because I was working in the data center. And then, uh, you know, fast forward, I took another job in quality assurance after that. And then I took another job in uh, infrastructure and then another one in cloud. And so, like, I was all over the whole industry, right? Eventually, I, I ended up working for in Rhythm, and that's where I met you. And it was interesting because, you know, you had asked me, if I always knew what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do technology, work in technology, but I didn't really know where. And so it was kind of, that was me exploring different areas of that industry to try to figure out, you know, what stuck. I don't regret not pursuing digital animation. I don't regret pursuing a lot of other parts of IT that I'm not that interested in fairly. All of that has a lot of transitive uh, knowledge that you retain and is useful for um, newer engagements in your life. And so even though I have a very roundabout way of kind of getting to where I am, uh, those experiences are the reason that I was able to get to where I am now. I think we all do. Everyone yeah. thinks they want to go one route and there's certain things, especially with experience, you truly understand or figure out exactly what you want to do after you do it and realize that's not what I want to do. So then you figure out from trial and error what you want. So one of the things you were saying was your parents were teachers. Uh, and that's more of the, the job nine to five type of mindset. You've started yep. several companies. There was a company you were just speaking about. There's app persistence. There's a threat sync. There's mm -hmm. a form of risk tolerance, I guess you can call it, in regards to the mentality that you have to start a business because of what you were saying, the capital, 
the risk mm -hmm. of will it work or these different, you know, there's a certain percentage of companies that actually survive and some don't. How do you feel that you were able to develop that strength or that mindset knowing it may not work, but this is something I really want to do. So I would rather pursue that and I'll figure out as time goes on. Like, how did you kind of build that strength to believe you could do this and actually go ahead and do it? Well, I'm actually still doing that today, um, which I'm sure you, you can answer the same way. <laughs> I kind of looked at my parents, both my parents are very well educated. Like my dad has his uh, PhD from Juilliard, you know, he's a musician. My, my oh, wow. daughter has two, two grad degrees. So both of them, you know, from the education perspective, very well educated people. But I watched them growing up and, you know, they were kind of grinding, you know, their nine to five. I mean, my mom, you know, was taking care of us and all. My dad was going to work every day. It made a good life for us. I didn't have anything I didn't need. So I don't have any, you know, ill will or anything towards the way that I was brought up. But I watched them do this day to day and I'd see all kinds of stuff through television and about major companies like Bill Gates and stuff. And when you start to get into technology, right, that's what you, you kind of hear about, the, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs Right. And they're like, well, how did they build these massive companies like HP, right? You know, big, uh, you know, company back in the day, Dell. You know, we all remember the commercials and stuff, right? Um, and, and you watch these companies like, well, they're building these things in, in like their garage. And then, you know, if you don't remember the story, I think about Microsoft, Microsoft sold to IBM before they even had a product. Right. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe I can do that too. And, and being young, being kind of naive. I, I didn't see all the aspects of the business side. Like I knew I want to pursue technology. I worked really hard to understand technology and thought that I was very competent in it. And obviously I'm still learning today because there's just so much of a landscape to keep learning from. I thought, hey, well, why can't I do that too? And then the more I started to get into it, like uh, when I started my first business, I was learning about the customer service side, right? And I was able to help people because of the talents that I had. But trying to scale that business, you know, was, was difficult. I didn't know anything about customer acquisition. I didn't know anything about uh, being able to, you know, go out and, and maybe like talk to people or host like press conferences at, um, you know, or little conferences through like the, the local uh, local chambers and local municipalities. Because um, I forget exactly where you can do it, but you could volunteer to just talk about different topics. And, and you know, business owners may come in that might be interested in hearing what you might have to say. There's one avenue to get exposure, right? But there's all that kind of stuff for self-promotion and promoting a business, marketing, all that. I knew absolutely nothing about that. I just knew the tech and I thought, okay, let me see what I can do with the tech. So that business was a failure, but I wouldn't say it was a failure from, from my learning. You know, And I think that's what people have to, to kind of learn as entrepreneurs as they go through it is even if you fail, it's okay. You know, it's part of exploring what you don't know. Right. And uh, you know, so that's how you kind of move forward. Um, when I started other businesses, I had partners and, uh, you know, having partners sometimes is a risk too, but also can be extremely beneficial. So learning about interacting with your partners, uh, learning about their strengths and your strengths and understanding, you know, those types of dynamics and what you guys are good at. Yeah. Like I still, today it's still difficult to do things like assess market fit for new products, uh, figure out how you're going to get, you know, investment money. And, and a lot of that has to do sometimes with the, the economy and, and what's going on in today's, today's landscape. So all these factors that you're, you're not really going to learn by just going to start your business, but as you start to encounter different situations, you'll start to build that up. So, um, you know, sometimes you hear stories about serial entrepreneurs and they just start business after business after business and 10 of them fail. The 11th one is really successful. I think they're going through their own process of learning the different facets of trying to, to own a business and uh, be able to, to grow a business, you know, from scratch. And so it's that journey that that's the important side of things, right?
that I would 100%. There's a book. I don't know if you've read it, but someone recommended it to me, and I recommend it to anyone, called E-Myth Revisited. It's the entrepreneurial myth. Basically, just because you're a specialist at doing something doesn't mean that you're good at creating a business doing that thing. Exactly. And, and, and that's one of those mindsets that people kind of get twisted. Like, oh, man, I'm an, I'm an amazing computer programmer, so mm-hmm. I can definitely start a software consulting firm. Eh, not really. So there, yeah. there's different mindsets of working from someone else's firm and going ahead and learning about the business while you're there and going ahead and actually doing it. Two totally different conversations. You can't figure yeah. it out, but you did not learn everything that you need for that business until you actually started that business. Yeah, there's a famous quote I'm sure you've heard is the, the people that know how always work for the people that know why. Right? Uh, I don't know if that's <laughs> Uh, yes. And, and that, that's true. Right. You can you know, you and I, we can build these massive cloud products. But if there's no market fit or the price point is too high or there's no real you know, value from the business perspective, then great. Like as technology evangelists and, you know, people that are trying to develop some of the most idealistic technologies out there, they may never really stick because there's no business case for it. Right. Exactly. So we've had we've both had our you know, ups and downs, our wins, our losses. What advice would you give someone who wants to pursue a career similar to yours? Rather be starting on business, rather be being a consultant, rather be just computer science, artificial intelligence in general. What was there something, if someone, if you were to start over, what would you tell your old self when you started out? So I would say that's probably about, about threefold, not to sound cliche. <laughs> <laughs> The first thing is uh, uh, know your craft. I'm going to answer your question in the context of being more of a technology evangelist and being at the forefront of like cutting edge technology, uh, which is what I you know always try to do. The way that kind of business works is you see patterns of how technology gets adopted, especially really forward facing technology that usually starts in the military, then through government, moves down uh, to entities, different businesses, and then the masses start to utilize that technology. Right? That's because where the research dollars are just happen to be funneled into you know, government and you know, technology. I never thought about that. You're right. Yeah. That being said, one, know your craft. Um, and stay ahead of the curve. And you really have to keep studying to, to keep ahead because, you know, as um, you remember Rishi from In Rhythm, as he would say, you know, technology is a, a downward escalator. You know, if you're, you're standing still, you're, you're, you're moving you're moving backwards, right? You're moving back down, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're moving back down, right? So you have to really stay ahead of your craft. And that's kind of an obvious point. The second thing ties into what I mentioned earlier, you know, the people that know uh, how always work for the people that know why. So as you get different jobs and start to work, uh, in uh, different environments. Anytime you're asked to do something, ask why. Be be that, you know, sort of, you know, nagger that's... That guy. Know, <laughs> in your, yeah, be that guy, you know. Oh, oh uh, I need you to, to do X, Y, Z. I need you to build this service this way. Or we're going to use this technology. Why? Ask why, right? Because the, there's a reason why the person designed it that way. And it may not even be because the, the technology is the most ideal technology. There are oftentimes a better business case for why you might not upgrade to the latest stuff. You know, maybe you need to get to market because you have a client and there's contracts waiting. And, you know, that gives you that exposure to that side of, you know, understanding of why decisions are made in technology, right? If I had my way, I'd always pick the latest, you know, versions of the language, latest cloud technologies, you know, but there's inherent risks there, um, you know, but definitely, you know, continue to, to, you know, push that, you know, push that boundary. So, um, 
yeah, you really need to understand your craft. You need to consistently know why. And, um, you know, I'd say the third thing is that, you know, a, as you're studying, um, there's not always going to be um, ideal places where you can get new knowledge, gain new knowledge. And um, through that, you know, for myself, I, I've always like looked at trial and error as a you know, big proponent of you know, understanding uh, you know, newer nuances of, of new technologies and things. And so you really have to just try new, try new things and, um, you know, see what the result of that is to give yourself feedback. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's really, you know, where you need to go. You made a very good point in regards to being cutting edge and also needing to kind of continuously upgrade your, your knowledge. When I was at Georgia tech, I don't know if it was the same thing at your school, they would always tell us everything you learn your first, uh, your freshman year by your junior year is obsolete just because mm -hmm. technology keeps changing all the time. Yeah. How do you stay up to date? I mean, some people like books and videos, articles, it's at meetups. How did you stay on that cutting edge and to figure out exactly what is that new technology that you're probably going to need to learn if you want to advance? So um, I actually do a lot of listening to, uh, you know, a lot of online resources like YouTube or, you know, just stream like CNBC. You know, I, I try to understand what's going on in the world. And a lot of that macroeconomic stuff kind of tells you where new technologies can fit. New technologies can be in any industry. And though that may be a little biased in the sense that uh, there are certain companies I like to follow and uh, certain products that are innovating, like, uh, you know, different cloud environments like the AWSs, the Microsoft Clouds, you know, the Googles uh, and those types of things. They'll constantly release new products. So I'll go and do a POC on a new you know, technology that's come out. And I'll see if I can figure out how it works. Uh, and if you sign up for accounts, for example, one thing I do now is uh, I have a Microsoft account and I speak to the support teams there about, you know, oh, the really? yeah, um, I, I'm actually building a, a, you know, one of ThreadSync's products or ThreadSync's uh, product is being built in uh, service fabric. And that's not technology that I used before, but I had identified it as an, an ideal technology, optimistic technology that the system should be built with. Uh, and I'd done stuff with Kubernetes and, you know, other, you know, platforms before, but I wanted to utilize this because it's also a learning experience for me. And I've done this with, you know, some of the other uh, businesses that I started is when I uh, start and sign something new, I tend to pick different technologies as well. Because if you can merge your, your growth and your learning with your everyday work, then you can spend a lot less time uh, keeping those things separate. And then you're able to, you know, better uh, utilize your time, be more productive. Okay, awesome. And in your career, you were saying that one of your resources was kind of building out whatever you want to, speaking to tech support teams, or just learning more about what's out there through the new CBNC, C, NBC? Uh, yeah, CNBC or CNBC. You know, Finance or whatever you want to keep up with. Are there people that you would say that also kind of influence in your growth? I know you had your parents who were very hardworking. That's mm -hmm. parents are usually going to be one of your motivations or seeing exactly what hard work is and those type of things. Were there people who were influential in your career? Were there people that you knew of or people that you knew directly? Yeah. So uh, that's an interesting question um, because for me, I didn't have a lot of people that were very influential in my career. I had a few people. And um, the way that I kind of carry myself, I'll say, or my experiences have kind of led to being around people uh, that helped uh, become influential. So uh, just to talk to that point, um, 
one person who was very influential was my business partner today with Ad Persistence, one of my business partners. His name is George Nemitz. And um, I was working at a company, A to Z Logics, and he actually brought me on to his project. He was actually the inventor of the ad tech technology that is now the core of the ad persistence company. And um, he had the idea back then, he was working on the patents. Uh, he didn't have any developers at the time, or he had a couple and they had left the company. And I had just happened to be in the right spot at the right time. That's the way I look at it. But you know, maybe he saw something in me and, and brought me onto the project. And uh, from that point on, that you know, he allowed me to you know innovate with him, um, give him feedback, you know, work with him to to kind of build his idea out and uh, you know bring that uh, to fruition. And uh, that experience was you know somebody who saw something in me and gave me an opportunity. And uh, so we developed a strong relationship going forward, and that really propelled my career because it did a number of things. It gave me a lot of confidence in uh, the fact that I had put a lot of effort you know into honing my craft, right. And then also the opportunity side, you know, business, you know, same thing when you're trying to bring something to market is you need both the, the right, you know, technology, the right product, and then the right timing a lot of times. And so same thing when you're growing your career, right? So he gave me that opportunity. It allowed me to really showcase what I could do, gave me more confidence and allowed me to kind of, you know, move through my career uh, uh, with, um, you know, more confidence and, uh, you know, integrity. And, um, you know, another, you know, some other people that were influential, like I had mentioned my parents before, um, my, I'll tell you a quick story. My, uh, mother, um, actually I found this out through, uh, one of my best friend's mothers who came to me one day, my mother was very difficult on me as a kid and, you know, Asian parents, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my mother, brought, you know, kind of raised me and, um, yeah. Uh, both, both my parents were pretty strict. My dad was pretty strict too. And if uh, my mother couldn't handle it with something, it's like, I'm going to tell your father, you know? <laughs> um, and that was like a scary moment. But uh, my mother had told uh, my best friend's mom that uh, she regretted being so harsh on me as a child. And, um, you know, this, this was maybe about five years ago, maybe not even a couple of years ago. And so I actually confronted my mother about this one night because she would never say anything to me. And I was like, well, you know, this person said um, that you felt really bad, that you regretted the way that, that you, you kind of brought me up, that you were too harsh on me. And I, I told her, I was like, I don't regret a single bit because if you hadn't been that harsh on me, I would not have developed the strong work ethic that I have today. Right. right? So, yeah, maybe, you know, you know, there's the give and take and, and you know, what do they say? Um, uh, Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you know, sometimes your your harsher engagements are what build your character, right? Something to look yes. at those lines. Um, but then also, like, what I did a lot is I tried to surround myself with a lot of people that are doing similar things. Like, so, that, that, I guess, an, another person or group of people, you know, includes you. Oh, and wow, yes, you. some of the guys that, you know, you know we worked at, at uh, you're welcome. <laughs> some of the guys we worked out in rhythm, like Sandro and Joe and, and you know, Rishi and those guys, like they're all entrepreneurs themselves, right? They're doing stuff outside of their business or their, their normal day job. They have their side hustles, whatever it is. And they're honing their craft and, and they're trying to build something from scratch and, uh, you know, make an impact, you know, in the world. And, um, you know, so surrounding yourself with those people helps elevate you too and helps keep that motivation going because we all have different sources of motivation and it's really difficult to stay motivated. And I've had times in my life where I haven't done that a lot, haven't surrounded myself with the right people. 
And other people don't view, you know, their, you know, careers that way. They look at maybe different parts of their life as more important, you know, not, it's not any detriment to them or anything like that. It's just the priorities uh, and, you know, their priorities. And so when you surround yourself with people, uh, you know, like us, other people that are trying to do something similar uh, and you bounce ideas off of you and I used to talk about, you know, what you were doing at Mojave. And I tell you, you asked me like, how, how's the ad, you know, ad company coming? You know, just talking about it, you know, keeps you in that spirit. And so it's important to, to keep your you know, mind elevated and your, you know, your motivation high so that you don't get discouraged. Because as you mentioned before, you're going to encounter a lot of hardships along the way. And, um, you know, what else are you going to have that keeps you moving forward? I think that's a very important aspect is having an accountability circle, mm-hmm. uh, especially yeah. if you're an entrepreneur. Nine to five. I mean, if you my day job, I don't really need anyone to motivate me to go to work. I, I need the paycheck right. to pay my bills. But from the business standpoint, when you're going, for instance, years and years and years where you're trying to get forget the green into the black of your business, it can be very difficult to stay motivated on what you're doing and believe in what you're doing. So that was one reason I used to always reach out to him like, man, how's our ad persistence going? How's threats going? What are you working on? When you when you releasing those type of things, it's it's like, oh, wow, it's not just me. So you Mm -hmm. understand there are other people who are pushing forward. And then you see that progress when you call me He's like, man, we just landed this contract or we're we're working on this financing or we're or some of my other friends are saying, you know, we we're going in a series a uh, financing and, and the next you know, a few months or I'm opening this business or I just had this investor that fuels me because I know I'm, those are like my close friends and colleagues. And I know that me and them work about the same. We have similar knowledge bases, similar thought process that motivates me in believing I, I, I can do that. And another thing is I never want to have that conversation where you and me are speaking. And I'm not trying to say playing the game top that, but is I want to be able to have a conversation where you're telling me that you're improving and I can tell you that I'm improving. Like yeah. that's, that, that's a very good feeling. Me. It's like, I almost feel like I'm letting you down. If I come back, he's <laughs> like, yeah, I, I gave up the company. He's like, what are you talking? You were the reason why we were always talking. <laughs> if you came, you know, I'm done with that Mojave stuff, right? You know, screw, screw the big contract we just landed. I'm, I'm going to go back to my day job. After hearing you, you know, <laughs> piss and moan about your day job all the time, that there's no way, you know, I'm talking to you again after that, you know. But yeah, you have to build that. So like, you know, I, I never went to an Ivy League school or anything like that. I went to, you know, William Patterson and, you know, NGIT. NGIT, you know, has very good programs, by the way. So I'm not knocking them. But one of the things you get in Ivy League school, you know, from what I hear, is it's all about the networking. It's not really about the education you get, right? And yeah, there's the networking from, you know, getting really good business contacts so that you can bring something to market because you're talking to people that have money. And, you know, there's, there's the opportunity side of it. But the other thing that's not talked about is you're around other people that are doing the same thing as you are. And like you said, you're, you're building that accountability circle. You're talking to people that are always trying to push forward. And so if you just take that concept and try to bring that into your life and make sure that you have, you know, uh, contacts and friends that you can call up and be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working through this problem. Um, you know, I just, just got rejected by this investor. Or, you know, I uh, need some help with this pitch deck, whatever it is. Yeah, just to bounce ideas off of. And, um, you know, you kind of build your own networking circle there too, you know, like you and I are good friends. If there's something I can help you with, 
then, you know, feel free to ask, you know, like that's the, the same kind of thing that you're building, you know, when you're at an Ivy League university, you're a similar right. concept, I'll say. And, and so that, that's really important to, to try and establish. The earlier, the better, too. Yes, absolutely. Now, you have a company, Ad Persistence. Mm-hmm. Um, my company, Majavi, we're, we're an ad platform technology, but how we approach it is totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, ad technology, it, it's funny, when you think of companies like Facebook, a majority yeah. of their profit is from the ad side. Yep. So when 90%. people say, you know, how does Facebook make their money? I'm not, I don't know what the exact number is, but it has to be in the 80s or above it's on where they generate the majority. Yep. all of their income. Mm-hmm. So when you had COVID, you had all these different industries that were falling apart. Mm-hmm. One of the industries that never truly failed were food because you needed basically necessities. Right. Uh, health, food, those type of industries. And advertisement was another big one because companies need to advertise their product so that they can generate income. If companies don't know that you exist, then you're out of business, basically. How does, what what does your company do, Ad Persistence? I know we spoke about it a little bit before, but I've definitely been interested to know exactly how your company plays a part in, in that industry. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, let me just start by saying it's not just my company. I have a bunch of partners. I, I, I don't I want to take credit yeah. for all that. But, uh, Sorry about that. Well, it's not just me yeah, and Rajabi. Also, it's my partner, Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we all work together. We have our different, uh, you know, contributions and whatnot. But what Advertistance is doing is we're revolutionizing the uh, digital advertising, um, you know, segment, uh, you know, in the industry. And um, what's not talked about uh, in advertising is, all right, when COVID happened, everything shut down. Yeah, companies need to advertise, uh, but companies didn't have money to advertise. So advertising spending dropped uh, with, with smaller companies and maybe sometimes it grew with larger companies. There was a whole, you know, uh, you know different difference of variability across industries. But with the companies like Google and Facebook, it really uh, heightened them because their services are very cheap, right? It cost me nothing to integrate um Facebook's SDK into my website and then start monetizing my revenue or monetizing my, my site, my publisher site, right? Same thing with Google. And they built these large infrastructures. So it's really hard to kind of do something different. Um, they're basically the economical model, the horizontal model in the industry where um, they don't really care how much money they're getting off an individual. They, they're so wide, you know, right. they can bring yeah. in millions and millions of customers. And everybody knows who they are. And, you know, Google particularly controls the entire advertising pipeline, the DSP, the SSP, all the way down to, you know, they own some publishers too. And with their SDK and all these publisher sites uh, and applications, and then they have their phone on Samsung, you know, their Samsung phones or their Android phones, um, you know, their technology is there too. They just own so much of the pipeline that it's hard to unseat them. What you see in the industry today is, is companies like the Walmarts, um, the Amazons, the Microsofts, they're building their in-house advertising. And so they're not using Facebook. They're not using Google. Um, so back to what App Persistence does is um, there is a huge need for um, uh, personal touch in the advertising industry because you have a lot of, uh, you have the Googles and the Facebooks of the world being so horizontal that they can't stay as relevant to individual audiences. Yeah, there's ways to configure, you know, how you can, you know, monetize and, and push out uh, content, different demographics. But um, App Persistence is building a direct-to-consumer attribution platform where if you can, what that means is 
if you have content and you want to build something in-house, then um, you know, we have technology that enables you to do that. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be an in-house completely model. Um, but for example, if I look at Walmart or Jet.com, they own their own infrastructure. They own their own content. They're selling their own products. Right? They would never use a Google. They would never use right. uh, you know, a Facebook. They don't need to. They have, they have such a large network. right? And they have so many products coming through. They can put all that content into a technology like ours. And then they can start to get all kinds of attribution data back from it. Um, now, this is helpful to a lot of smaller um, you know, companies as well uh, because of the cost model. If you want to monetize, you can monetize a lot more. Uh, our, you know, our product uh, returns more ROI than the Googles of the world. Um, but what the platform does is we, we give advertisement content something called a shelf life. So in the way traditional advertising works is you get an advertisement on your screen, uh, you see it pop up, it's for you know, the new Air Jordans, whatever that may be. <laughs> and let's say you, know, you, you are interested in them, you might click on it and go buy them, right? But if you weren't interested in them, you wouldn't. And if you didn't click on them, that's actually the end of that advertising campaign. It's done, it's gone. Uh, you might see another Air Jordan ad someplace else, but there's no uh, asset tying, especially if it doesn't come from the same company. You know, if it's the same company advertising, then you know, they may have a way of tracking that. But so we take that a step further and uh, we give ad content a shelf life by basically giving you your own version of the offer. And what that allows us to do is start tracking how you interact with that offer. So you might take at different actions on it, like storing the, um, the uh, advertisement. You might view the advertisement and return back to you know, what we call a post-impression location. Uh, and which are basically different, potentially apps, different placements on websites. Uh, all secondary impressions are kind of you know, post-impression locations, as we call it. But the point being is, as that offer comes back in front of you more and more times, if you don't take action on it, then we can tell you're not interested in it, so we won't show it to you uh, as much. Um, if you take more action on it, you start coming back to it, looking at it again, then we know that we can gauge your interest level. And we're able to do this because of the shelf life concept. We can tie all your interactions throughout history. It doesn't have to happen immediately when the impression comes to you. So now we've built your behavior around the, your own personal life cycle of how you interact with that content. You know, you may be the type of person that, you know, you are thinking about buying new shoes. You see it, maybe you save it, and then you give yourself 48 hours. And then if you still want it, you go back and buy it, right? Or maybe you, you know, you like to store stuff and come back to it several months from now, or maybe you know how much it costs, so you save up and then now you, you want that offer again and you don't know how to get that the same deal, right? Um, so those kinds of insights we can gather from just collecting all the behavioral information on how individuals actually act on different content. And we do that without demographic information. So being a direct-to-consumer uh, platform means it's consumer-driven. The advertiser actually has less say in how often it, the ad comes up. Um, and that's the majority of the industry today. You're bombarded with ads that you're never going to purchase the, you know, the, uh, the off, whatever they're offering. You know, if I don't buy Air Jordan, so if I kept seeing that Nike ads, they're wasting their money. Right. You know? So right. how would a company, I guess, implement that with what it, is it mostly just in a website or as an application? It'd be yeah, on their so website? We, Yep. Yeah. It can be a okay. websites. Uh, it can be on you know mobile devices. Uh, any any kind of application. And uh, we have um, we host the back end. Uh, we're actually building a new SaaS platform now, multi tenant SaaS oh, platform. Okay. Cool. 
uh, that's going to come out. Um, you know, but right now we're hosting, you know, for some of our clients and uh, they've put SDKs in their, uh, their the publisher sites and applications. And then, uh, you know, that SDK does the work to decide what content gets displayed. How would someone, if someone was interested in your company, how would they kind of contact you guys to kind of start moving that process forward? Yeah, so they can contact us through our site at persistence.com. There's uh, contact information there. They can reach out. Um, I think there's email contacts or at least phone numbers up there. Um, where they can get in contact with our sales team and okay, they can get, cool. start to get into the sales funnels and they can request demonstrations so we can give them demos about how it works. You know, we'll jump on calls with you, talk to you about what you need and, and uh, how the technology can potentially help you. Awesome. Now, this is one of the very interesting parts for me from the technology side, artificial intelligence. So when you speak to me about artificial intelligence, the first thing that comes to my mind is Skynet and Terminator robots taking over the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we had a conversation the other day where I was asking you, what was your understanding and belief on artificial intelligence? And you had a quote. I'm not even going to try <laughs> to repeat it. <laughs> but I, I know I you're... down on my board over here. It's like I look at it every day. <laughs> your approach to artificial intelligence was a little differently than from everything that I've studied and learned. So when I would look into artificial intelligence, the number one thing that everyone would always tell me is you need terabytes and pentabytes and you need so much data to actually get a clear picture of the of the information that you want to be analyzed for that mm -hmm. AI algorithm to actually work. Yeah. You think a little bit differently on how that works. So can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, what did you mean yeah, by that? So you go against the status quo. Basically. I do. I was just going to say that, you know, I've always gone against the status quo. And that's similar to the ad technology that our company is building. We are flipping the ad model upside down and putting the hand, you know, the, the data collection aspect in, in as influenced by the consumer instead of the advertiser. So in the same way uh, with the ThreadSync platform, what I'm trying to do is challenge the status quo here again. Now, yeah, you need terabytes of data. And, and the more data you have, the more clear picture you're probably going to get. But then that's not a scalable solution, right? Um, if you need, um, you know, just I guess to give an example, you know, if, uh, if the sun comes up three times a week and every day the sun comes up, you know, I check my text messages every morning at 830. Uh, and if the sun comes up and it's cloudy, then I'll check my messages at 10 o'clock, right? Um, you might think those two events have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But mathematically, the, the algorithm is exactly the same. Right. You know, when, when you when we solve problems in technology, what we tend we tend to do is we take the mathematical equations, um, create a model and then build the implementation. Well, once I know um, what my bias is going to be, the mathematical model is going to be the same. The, the data collection points might be different. You know, uh, we as human beings may not understand uh, certain correlate uh, certain uh, correlation because we have this need for causality. And I want to say that, um, you know, every morning if I, if the sun came up, then why would I check my messages at 8.30 versus at 9 o'clock? Maybe if I dug deeper, and this is kind of getting abstract, maybe it's because it's cloudy and if my window's open, I don't wake up because the light wakes me up. And, you know, there's all kinds of like levels of abstraction you can go, right? And we can just keep going and going and going and going. Just because you don't understand what the causality is doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So you have to start somewhere. You have to start with correlation. And there are no scalable models today in artificial intelligence. 
um, where you can take correlation and you can apply it to different uh, you know, parts of the, the, the AI lifecycle, right? It's tons of algorithms out, tons of different ways to um, you know, design and make decision-making engines. But if we just let go of causality for a second and say, okay, causality is a secondary part. Let's look at correlation and how things you know, so somewhat relate or loosely relate to each other. Then I believe we can make a lot more progress in the AI industry quicker. And then the causality will eventually you know, uh, supersede. Everyone has a belief on what AI is. What is your definition of actually what it is? Because I know it's not what we see in movies. It's not. That, that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What what exactly what exactly is I know there's neural networks and there's all different these mm-hmm. slang and cool tech words but what exactly is artificial intelligence and its purpose because a lot of companies use it but we no one really knows so I'd say the smallest form of artificial intelligence is automation um, if I write a script that you know uh, like a cloud template that you know, our cloud formation script that, that brings up a bunch of EC2 instances, for example, and then deploys my application onto it. Well, in essence, that's kind of a software agent, right? And so when I talk about AI, I talk about decision-making engines. And, you know, those decision-making engines, there's not really a whole lot of variability in what it can do, but it's programmed to do something. Same way you train an algorithm, and then when you give it some type of input, you're, it's going to, to take action or make a decision for you. Right. So it's kind of like, okay, if I could create a separate software agent that can automate a task for me and um, maybe there's no uh, variability in that task. So there's no, you know, if else clauses or, um, you know, no, no tangent that I can get off on. That's, I would say the simplest form of artificial intelligence, just automation script. Now, if I start to apply more of a, a deeper meaning to that and I say, okay, the problem space just got more complex. If I don't have enough resources, you know, in my AWS quota for EC2 instance, then spin up an ECS cluster instead, then deploy, um, you know, my application onto there. Now I'm starting to make a decision within that software agent, right? And it's based on the very simple fact that uh, I have some uh, some piece of information, and I'm going to do X if if that information, you know, is X, and I'm going to do Y if that information, you know, tells me Y. Uh, and then as you start to get more and more um, you know, deeper into decision-making uh, and more complex problem statements, then you have many more pathways through your software. And those many more pathways needs more and more data, right? And so then you start to get all kinds of new algorithms that come out, like support vector machines, neural networks. You know, obviously they work different than automation scripts. You know, I'm just basically illustrating the fact simpler. that, yeah, that simpler concept is, um, you know, you you build all these decision-making engines on data and you start to need more and more data to influence your decision. And the more, more branch points you have, the more data you need, because now you have to start looking at correlation causality between those data points. And, you know, then you start to birth um, artificial intelligence algorithms, like, you know, ensemble algorithms or, you know, like Bayes algorithms or, you know, random forests, neural network support vector machine, whatever it is, classification types, regression types, and um, yeah, you start to build from there. So in, in the long term, the way that I see it is, uh, you know, we're not really trying to build a Terminator. Maybe we'll get there <laughs> you know, at, at the same point. Um, but everything is very, uh, very uh, pigeonholed right now in the sense that you build a uh, uh, decision-making engine for a very specific reason. And um, the, the holy grail of the artificial intelligence world is something called artificial general intelligence. And that's where you can start to build 
uh, an algorithm that doesn't have to be trained for a specific thing. It can start to acquire knowledge and then start to compartmentalize and then start to build its own algorithms or train its own algorithms and, and then be able to assess itself whether or not it is able to complete that task. Right. And that's a hugely complex thing because that agent, that software agent needs to be able to interact with the world. Right. And so then now you start to get things like natural language processing, uh, you know, analyzing sight, image, image, vision algorithms. And it just opens up to just like an infinite, you know, possibility of all kinds of different areas in the, within the industry. And so I believe we're still at least a decade away from getting anywhere near, um, you know, a Terminator. But uh, I'm sure you've seen all kinds of videos uh, online of different companies working in robotics. And, uh, you know, there's there's this one video I saw the other day. This, this robot goes through this obstacle course and it's able to maintain its balance, jumping uh, to different, um, you know, different, uh, uh, you know, I don't, items and obstacles that are on the ground. So it's navigating its way, hopping over, you know, things, going through doors, like, you know, opening, uh, you know, door handles and all that's great. But uh, it's programmed to do that one thing. And if you ask it to do something else, there's no way it would ever be able right. to do that, right? So that's really the holy grail of artificial intelligence. And so we can, you know, continue to, to teach and train and build algorithms for all kinds of different things and group them all together, put them all into one giant agent. And, you know, maybe you get like an IBM Watson type of, <laughs> type of uh, machine. What is the future of AI? Like, is that a career that people should pursue? Or is, is what, what is kind of your vision or your goal of where it should go, whether it be with ThreadSync or just artificial intelligence in general? I think uh, AI is going to become a bigger and bigger industry. Uh, you had, I believe, in the, the 70s where, so AI kind of took a nosedive because the technology just wasn't advanced. So when AI first came out, uh, there wasn't a lot of support for it. And you had a lot of theory and you know, a lot of people trying to build algorithms, but you just, because of the need for data, even at that time, you just didn't have a lot of it. So when big data applications started to come out recently, um, then AI started to become uh, you know, a topic of conversation again. And now we've gotten to the point where we have you know, petabytes of data and we can train algorithms that can be you know, pretty fairly accurate uh, when they make uh, decisions. Um, and, you know, but the, the bigger thing that I see uh, with AI is there's something else you can correlate AI to. You know, the, the kind of goal of AI from a technology standpoint is, yeah, we want to make our lives better, but what are we really doing? We're kind of building humans, right? We're trying to mimic the way human beings act, you know, can react, you know, of course, you know, neural networks are supposed to mimic, you know, brain cells. Um, you know, that, that's how that started, right? You know, or, you know, maybe from something else, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way things are going. So we're trying to build, you know, intelligence. When we say intelligence, we're trying to build human decision-making engines, right? And so um, in, in some sense, you can also link uh, AI concepts to human communication. And uh, actually, that's where I came up with the, my own development process and this whole idea of, uh, you know, being able to uh, take some AI principles and apply that towards, you know, development, you know, development uh, and software productivity and, and uh, that sort of thing. Um, there's even AI ops, you know, as part of DevOps. Uh, and I think you're going to see more and more algorithms and like feedback systems uh, being integrated into software technology so that you can mitigate things like uh, you see a lot of threat detection software being built in the uh, antivirus industry right um you know and in cloud products they're built into some of the the services in aws and um you know and, and azure and you know google any of the other products that are out there uh, 
And so there's all kinds of draws from it. I think every industry is eventually going to uh, have some form of, of AI. And when I say that, some type of decision making. Um, I have this philosophy that businesses themselves are decision making engines. Um, they act the same way as the software agents we're trying to build. Right? It's just making engine basically needs to learn how to do something, be able to look at feedback and, and try to improve its own process. Right. And that's what businesses do. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very interesting. So you've worked in all these different fields from the ad space, to now with Red Sync and artificial intelligence, the consulting world. What is a common myth that you've heard? <laughs> One that just kind of sticks out in your head and whatever profession, whichever career that or field that you're going down that you'd like to debunk. Hmm. Well, um, I think the biggest one that I'm going to try to debunk is that you need a lot of data to have a good decision making engine. Um, that's the that's the one that comes to mind. Uh, Why would you say that? Because I don't think we're ever going to get there uh, when it comes to you know actual artificial intelligence if we can't do that. You know, and also um, there's something to be said of the idealism about making a decision and it's that understanding what matters about a particular application doesn't have to be some great amount of data. Like you and I, we make decisions every day, right? You decide what you want to eat, you, you know, for lunch, you decide how much time you want to spend on you know, something, you decide how much time you want to sleep. Um, obviously, you know, there are bigger and bigger problems that technology is trying to solve today. But think about the calculations that your brain is doing just to, to come up with, you know, that type of response, right? A lot of it's habitual. And if a lot of, if a lot of decision-making is habitual, then why do I need such a huge amount of data to program something that's habitual? Right. right. So there's, a, there's, yeah. Right. You see what I'm saying? Like there, there's a lot of like kind of controversies, you know, and I am very oversimplifying it and I probably get a lot of, you know, uh, you know, slack for <laughs> Uh, you know, saying something like this, you know, publicly, but, uh, you know, there's, there's something that we're not seeing yet. And I don't know what that is, but I know that we're moving you know, towards a trend where we need to be able to accomplish things with smaller amounts of data, because uh, if we can't do that, then we're not going to advance the field as quickly as we think that we want, you know, we can. Gotcha. So this is one part in the interview where I like to switch things up a little bit. If you were the interviewer and I was the interviewee, is there a question that I did not ask that you would have liked to answer, or there is a question that you would have liked to ask me? Um, I stump everyone with this one. Don't worry. It's, yeah, just, not, yeah, it's yeah. not just you. There's going to be dead air for a couple of minutes. Right if there's a question I can ask you, I think your your sort of background and upbringing was a little bit different. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think you had a lot of influential people around, or at least more than myself. Um, but just having those influential people around um, isn't necessarily enough to motivate people sometimes. And so if having people surrounding yourself with the right people is not influential enough, how do you... Uh, I guess, find and foster those kinds of individuals that really want to, you know, do something different with their life when it comes to entrepreneurship or getting out of the traditional career, you know, market. Um, because, you know, both you and I, as we, as we start to build businesses and, you know, we want to find like-minded people that want to work in that industry too, right. Or work with us and help us build something new and bring it out there. 
so you know, what would you say is a way that, you know, something you can look for? I'm a, I'm a very big fan of, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, another thing that I like to tell people is if you show me your five closest friends, I can generally tell where you are in life, how much money you make, what type of area you live in, because those are the type of people that you, you feed off of. So in my aspect, when I, when I first moved to New York in 2000, it was somewhat of a culture shock, uh, I actually had this conversation. I was walking around the neighborhood last week, uh, a couple of days ago, and a lady said hi to me. It's the story of getting to a point. And I kind of I looked at her and I looked behind me wondering, who is she talking to? And I was like, you talking to me? And the lady was like, yeah, you. I was like, I'm sorry. I've been in New York for the last 15, 20 years and people don't talk to you. Mm-hmm. So... As time went on, I started to tell, I said it was good to come back down south because I was used to being able to speak out to people and people speak back to me. And it it just was a normal thing. What I'm trying to say is I I felt a lot more comfortable finding people who were like me. So I can always be flexible enough of involved to work and be around people that are not like me. But those aren't the people that I usually build a lifelong relationship with. So when I have people in my life like yourself, there were, what, 120, 130 devs at InRhythm when we were working there between all the different teams. But there were certain people that I clicked with. And every person that I clicked with at InRhythm had a business to the side. I didn't ask them to have a business on the side. It just happened that way. There was you. There was Rishi, there was Joe Cahill, there was John Nealon. There were all these people that we had something that we could talk about outside of just the workplace. I mean, the nine to five workplace. We talked yeah. about our businesses, we talked about our careers. When we hung out to you know, have a drink or go get something to eat, we could have conversations where we were benefiting from each other. So you will meet, it's almost, you know, throw some mud on the wall and see what sticks. The more people that you speak to, the more networking events, the more meetups that you go to, you will meet those like-minded people. And you might find them at the most ridiculous places. It might be on the subway, might be at your work. Usually it's at work because if you work in a career, you're probably going to find people in your career that have similar thought processes as you do. But I think that's a major part is I'm going to meet a lot of people and then you're going to kind of funnel it down to the people where you just have something that clicks and you're going down similar pathways mentally on where your final goal is. My final goal was never to be a software consultant and work a nine to five every day. And literally everyone in my circle of people that I keep in contact with on a regular basis, they think the exact same way. So it kind of goes back to the, I don't want to ever look at certain people in my network and tell them, I quit or I decide I don't want to do it anymore. Those are the people I want around me. So if I do have those moments, if person A doesn't pick up, B, C, and D might. So I need those people around me because the risk tolerance and the mentality you need to start a business can be very taxing on you. So you need that that energy from someone else sometimes. There will be days you just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. So does that kind of answer? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's you know hard to find the right people to bring into your business, and sometimes there's a, a you're kind of just by doing that you're going into status quo, bringing in somebody who has other engagements, like other entrepreneurs, right? But sometimes at the beginning you need to bring those people in so they can help you, uh, they can leave an impact on your business and help you get to where you need to go. And it's hard to find people like that just through interview processes or sometimes just having a conversation about someone's background or whatever that may be. You know, as our businesses grow, then we're going to have to bring in, uh, of course, enough people that know what they're doing and want to, you know, see the vision, but also what level of, you know, say entrepreneur would you want to bring in someone that's not going to just kind of walk away too quickly, but also has that entrepreneurial mindset because they're going to go above and beyond. They're going to, you know, take that initiative. And, you know, that's, you know, that's where the whole talent uh, side of, uh, you know, growing your business comes from, right? Yeah, so I, I don't take anyone who's in my circle for granted. They may never be my business partner, business that I'm doing, but we always bounce ideas off each other like you and I. Maybe one day mm-hmm. we will be in business together, but as of right now, if you ever need anything, you know you can contact me anytime. I'm going to respond and give you whatever I know from my experience and my expertise, and I know I can get the same thing from you. So I appreciate and value that type of relationship because I don't have that. I know hundreds. I know a lot of people. I'm that guy. He's like, James, uh, I need such and such. You know somebody? I probably do. But Mm -hmm. they're colleagues. They're not people that I would consider friends, if that makes sense. So so there's a huge difference to me. I have tons of colleagues and tons of associates. But my friends, those are the people. There's something I actually just posted a little while ago. Is There's no such thing as... If anyone ever tells you that they're too busy, that means they're too busy for you. You will never hear me say that I'm too busy. <laughs> never. If I ever tell you it's, I'm too busy, I'm too straightforward. I'll just tell you, no, I'm not going to tell you I'm too busy. Yeah. I just won't respond. But I'll never. you will never hear me say I'm too busy. I will always make time for the people that matter to me. And the people who are in that circle of friends that I hold close to me, no matter what I'm doing, I'll make time. I'm, I might tell you I have a meeting from six to seven. I'll call you at seven fifteen, but I will get back to you. Period. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there, also. Yeah, I still want you to come and work for us at some time. You know, not not for us or with us. I mean. <laughs> now, here's one thing that I, I definitely want to do. I want to give you a moment to shine. I know you spoke about addresses and you talk about thread sync, but what would you like our listeners to know about you? Uh, where they can kind of connect with you online? And just, you know, just kind of promote some of the things that you're working on. Okay. Um, well, you can always connect me uh, connect with me on my LinkedIn profile. Um, so you can look me up, you know, through, you know, yourself uh, if you can't find me. Um, I use, try to use the same picture across the board. Um, you can connect with me on uh, ThreadSync. Uh, you can come. I have a blog on my ThreadSync, uh, you know, website. Um, there's not a whole lot there, but I'm trying to post some stuff about my, my uh, development uh, methodology and philosophy, and I want to continue to put up some you know blog posts there about uh, you know different you know topics that come up, and then I'll try to pr- cross promote those on on LinkedIn as well. And um, yeah, you can uh, you can get my email off of LinkedIn, um, send me an email message, uh, or send me a LinkedIn message, and then uh, you know talk to me you know directly. I, I I'm happy to talk with anybody that wants to connect with me, anybody who wants to send me a message. Uh, I'm not too off-putting. Uh, unless you're a recruiter, then you know don't uh, 
<laughs> but he might not get a response. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for myself, you know, I've had, this is my third and fourth attempt, say, at a business, right? And my first business, Aries uh, Digital Technologies, you know, wasn't, you know, that successful. I learned a lot from it. My second business actually was called ThreadSync, but I never got to the point where we patented anything. We, you know, put anything in stone, file for the actual business. It was more of a project and a concept. And then, you know, the third opportunity I had was with this uh, ad persistence company. And then um, now also I'm trying to, you know, put something together with ThreadSync as well and kind of, you know, re, you know, kind of re-engineer, you know, the ideas and concepts from that project and actually turn it into a business now. But, uh, you know, I, if anybody wants to talk with me and just like, you know, bounce ideas off me or just give me insight on, you know, what you think, anything that I've said here or just you want to talk and, and network, that, that's perfectly fine. I like to hear what other people think about different topics, especially in technology, but, you know, even in finance or blockchain and that kind of stuff too. Uh, I'm very, uh, you know, into those types of technologies. So I like having conversations around that. Okay, awesome. So what I'll do is, uh, on my website and also in the post, I'll actually put your information. I know I had asked you earlier, I said, I know your thread is spelled a little differently because it's actually an acronym, which I yep. completely forgot. So it's T-H-R-E-D-D-S-Y-N-C.com. Yep. So That's I'll actually post that information for anyone who definitely wants to get in contact with you. Awesome. So now to my signature question. Some people hate it. Some people love it. <laughs> <laughs> what was your darkest moment in your journey getting to where you are and becoming who you are now and how did you cope and overcome that situation or that time so um actually this is not that difficult of a question for me um so i had um all right as i mentioned a few minutes ago the thread sync was a project that i started um, with a partner and uh, we were building technology at the time for a compute cluster using general purpose GPU. So I had done some designs um, and uh, I was working with a, a CUDA expert and I was building sort of like the front end interfaces, dashboards, uh, interfacing with the clusters. And um, we were coming up with uh, some technology that we eventually wanted to kind of sell to NVIDIA if we could. This is before NVIDIA took off. Right. And NVIDIA at the time, and I still think they have this problem, is um, if you know CUDA technology, you can't start multiple processes on general purpose GPUs. So if I have a thousand, um, if I have a thousand uh, um, SPUs inside of a GPU and I used 500 of them on a process, I can't go schedule the other 500 to use a different process. I have to stop the service first and populate oh, it. Oh, synchronous. Yeah, because you know, general GPUs, they're vector processing machines, right? They don't have complex CPUs where you can schedule stuff and things like that. Um, I think they, NVIDIA has come a long way, or maybe they've decided, and I'm not sure, you know, today it's been, you know, 10 years now, uh, so they may have a solution for this. But we were building a technology layer with templates where you could do that. And by breaking up scientific applications and algorithms, there were specific times where we could uh, halt processes and then restart or start the next stage of someone's algorithm and then reschedule a new process on top of that. That was supposed to be part of the toolkit we were building. And I thought this was a really widely innovative thing. Yeah, at the time, the video could have maybe just worked on it themselves. But they're a hardware company, not a software company. And so they struggled to do this. And when they actually promoted this, uh, that they had this technology, it was the year after uh, my group broke up. 
And so that was kind of, uh, you know, really disheartening because we were onto something and I thought that we could have, you know, brought something to market. Even if we didn't sell to NVIDIA, we could have brought something innovative, you know, to the market. And, you know, that was kind of a moment in my life where I thought, okay, um, we, we tried to build something. We had a great idea. We, we couldn't get it to market on time. We were too slow. We didn't have enough people. Whatever the, you know, the, the reasons why, you know, it, it you know, didn't work out, you know, for, for the project. And then uh, when it all fell apart, I was very disheartened. And for a time, I didn't want to do anything with other, other you know, business attempts. Um, uh, and I actually didn't do anything else until Ad Persistence. Uh, how many years was that? That was about four years. Okay. I mean, four years till Ad Persistence? Yeah. Okay. yeah well, till A to Z Logics, which is when I, where I met you know, my, one, two of my business partners today. And um, yeah, then I started working on advertising project and that became its own entity later. Right. But that was very disheartening because, you know, the first business I had, I put a lot of work into. I was going around with a friend of mine, I remember, like with uh, paper printed flyers and like putting them on people's doorstep to try to get our name out there. Right. <laughs> you know? um, but with this, it was like, OK, I felt close. We had an idea. We were building it. We had, you know, we we're building a prototype. We we're almost done. And it just felt like. You know, we just need to get over that like final hump, you know, you know, build the organization, you know, go get funding. Of course, this is before understanding that there's all these other business, you know, components to running a business. So even if I was successful at getting a building a product and our team was successful building the product, doesn't mean it would have ever came to fruition, you know. But at that moment, that was like, OK, we're, we're shooting very far. I'm working with a lot of smart people, you know, a few smart people. And um, it, it just never worked out. And uh we put two years of work into that and that that uh i know it doesn't sound like a lot of time but uh you know it was, it was really disheartening um when everything how did you up. overcome that where you actually um, made a decision you know what i want to give this another shot and actually go forward with that persistence yeah so um what happened was I, st I started to go back into so one of the benefits of working on these side projects and starting you know the other businesses is it allowed me to get into the corporate world um, because i didn't have a lot of experience in the corporate world yet you know, so this is that was before I started working for Cablevision or just like towards the tail end of and then, excuse me, working in the data center at Cablevision. Um, I, I sat in the same position for, you know, four to five years almost before I moved to uh, A to Z Logics before I you know, kind of moved up that way. And so what happened was in sitting in that same position for that period of time, I just felt like I was doing a disservice to myself. Because I'm going, I'm doing that nine to five, you know, as you talked about, you know, our, we don't want to do the nine to five. That was working overnights, but, you know, the point right. is still the same. Like I didn't want to work for somebody else. And it would take years and years and years to, to move up in the company. You know, I remember even like having conversations and, you know, or battles with myself and saying, well, okay, I can make the salary work. You know, I don't need to make as much money. And then, uh, yeah, I, I kind of went to, I guess, a darker, you know, darker place. Um, where I just, you know, had to kind of cope and deal with the fact that this is kind of going to be life. Right. And then it just got to a point where it's like, okay, what, what's going on? You know, I started to meet some other people where, you know, they were having their own businesses on the side and uh, taking a risk, going to AZ logics, going to a startup from an established credible, you know, large company. It was my first experience going to a small company. Um, and then, you know, starting to see the other people work really hard and work differently and the attitude of the, the people in that organization was much different than the attitude of the people I was working with at Cablevision. Right. Um, that started to spark those old feelings of, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe I can kind of 
go back into that entrepreneurial world and come up with a new idea. You know, sometimes it's difficult to come up with the idea. And if you don't have one, then you start doing things more traditionally. Right. So another, I guess another idea also didn't come out until, you know, I met the right people, um, you know, at Asian Logics. Seems like one of the, the common threads in everything that we do is someone else. I always yeah. tell everyone, <laughs> you really That's can't do anything. Point. You really can't do anything without a team. Now, you can mm-hmm. try to do it on your own, but if you look at any great success, I don't care who it is from Stephen King, he has managers and whatever else. You have Jeff Bezos, he has a whole company, Steve, just everyone. And Steve Jazz was nothing without Steve Wozniak, right? Exactly. And if you look at any successful person anywhere, and when I say successful, I don't mean uh, small mom pop shop. I mean truly influential or you're making a I'm trying to say this without being politically correct, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you want to do something really big and make a true legacy or impact, it's going to involve a team. Because anything that can be achieved by yourself really isn't that big. Yeah. It, it's it's really not. Because you're gonna be weak in too many areas and you need those other people to help you rather be with brainstorming, rather be from just the development or the marketing. I'm good. I'm a jack of many trades, but there are just certain things I'm just not good at. Yeah. Editing these videos is not going to (laughs) happen. But my brother is incredible at it. (laughs) I'm just going to say that same thing. It's like, you know, you you start to learn more and more what you're not good at. Like, um, I'm not a good salesman. You know, I'll tell you that right up front. You know, I'm the the technology guy. You know, I'm good at that. I can talk about the technology. I can tell you why it's important, why, you know, there's a business case for it and all that. But I'm not a salesman at the end of the day. And there's a lot of marketing things, other parts of business facets that I don't, you know, fully grasp. And, you know, that's not my forte. And so, you know, as uh, ThreadSync grows, you know, I'll probably bring in people to handle, you know, those different parts of that business, you know. So I would like to say thank you for joining me. It is always a pleasure. Uh, when you said that you wanted to come on the show, I, I, I actually was, yes, let's go, Rob. <laughs> I'm really flattered that you asked me to join. Um, and I really appreciate uh, having to do this experience with you because uh, this is my first podcast. I've never been on a podcast before. <laughs> yeah, and, and I try to make it very conversational and comfortable for people speaking mm-hmm. about what they're good at because – when you speak about something that you're passionate about and you're good at, you can speak for hours about it. Now, yeah. if I was to come to you and ask you to speak about something that you're not familiar with, accounting or, you know, <laughs> neuroscience, uh-huh. then you'd be like, oh, stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from that aspect, thank you for coming on the show. Definitely appreciate you. You know, I'm always here for if you ever need me for anything. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So thank you for joining me for this episode of In the Woods. Be sure to sign up to our email list at moreinthewoods.com so that you don't mess out on our next episode. Follow me at William Moore, the author on all social media platforms. I'm James Woods. Some people know me as William Moore. Thank you for listening.